to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the box. With Katie. And Allie. Usually, we would be hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women in history or women who should be more famous. <laughs> Absolutely. We have very special guests here with us today, Barry White and Joanna Sleva. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're delighted to have this opportunity to speak to you today. Dr. White recently retired from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, where she served as historian and as research director for the USHMM Center for the Prevention of Genocide. And Dr. Sleva is a historian at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany Claims Conference in New York, where she also administers academic programs. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves, and then we can dive into your book, The Counterfeit Countess. Uh, I uh, recently retired from the Holocaust Museum, uh, but before that, I had a career at the United States Department of Justice, working on investigations and prosecutions of first of Nazi criminals who were living illegally in the United States, and then that expanded to include other kinds of human rights violators. I have a PhD in history specializing in German history and European history with an outside field in Latin America. Uh, and I have worked in genocide prevention at the Holocaust Museum and also there as an expert on issues related to the Holocaust, post-war genocides, and international justice. And I am a Holocaust historian by training. My specialty is the Holocaust in Poland and Polish Jewish history. My first book, Jewish Childhood in Krakow, A Microhistory of the Holocaust, examined children's experiences and recollections and their daily lives in Krakow. And it also dealt with the many women, the mothers, the sisters, the children themselves who were, uh, who were girls at the time, and the social workers who were women who were helping children, as well as women rescuers who provided a range of assistance to Jewish children. And I, before coming to the claims conference, I worked in Jewish nonprofits, the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, and the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. So now I work at an organization that is the only one that negotiates with the German government for compensation for Jewish Holocaust survivors. Well, such important work you're doing, and we're so happy to have you here to talk about this book. Um, but before we get into it, we do have to talk about the cocktail we made for it. <laughs> so we do this for every book. And for this one, I was looking at Polish cocktails, like traditional Polish cocktails. Um, so this one is vodka, apple juice, cinnamon, and honey. And so it's kind of like an apple martini, but a, with a little sweetness to it. And you garnish with an apple. So cheers. Cheers, <laughs> cheers to your book. Mmm. It's delicious. <laughs> it tastes really good. Yeah. It tastes like apple. So before we dive into your book, can you set the scene for us? What time period are we in? What country are we in? And what is life like for women, especially Jewish women at this time? Well, the book takes place uh, mostly during World War II in German-occupied Poland. It's the biography of Janina Mailberg, who was a Polish-Jewish mathematician. Uh, she was from eastern Poland, an area that is now in Ukraine, uh, and that was much contested uh, over the years. 
Uh, and uh, she broke some barriers and defied some stereotypes to get a PhD in pre-war Poland. Uh, and then she was married to a, a Polish philosopher, Henry Mailberg. They were both Jewish. When the Germans occupied the area of Poland that they were living in in 1941, they were facing persecution and murder because they were Jews. So they fled to the Polish city of Lublin, where they were able to get false identities as Polish aristocrats, Christians. She became Countess Janina Sukodolska, and she became a an official of a Polish relief organization that the Germans allowed to operate in occupied Poland, but only to help non-Jewish Poles. She had perfect German, so her responsibilities included negotiating with Nazi and SS officials in Lublin for measures to help Poles. She was uh, very persuasive, extremely persistent, never took no as a final answer. She actually managed to persuade the Germans to turn over nearly 10,000 captive Poles into the care of her organization. She also pressed the SS at Majdanek concentration camp in Lublin to allow her organization to deliver massive quantities of food, medicines, even at one point decorated Christmas trees for the Polish prisoners at Majdanek. And she brought these deliveries herself to Majdanek, into all the way in, in a place where 63,000 Jews were murdered in gas chambers and shooting pits. And at the same time, she was an officer in the underground Polish Home Army and used those deliveries as cover to smuggle messages and supplies to fellow resistance members who were imprisoned in the camp. Mm -hmm. It's so crazy because I have never heard of this woman. And when I was looking at your book and reading about her, I can't believe that she's not a more well-known name. Um, so I'm curious, how did you find her and what made you decide to write this book? And how did you find each other to do this project together? I first found out about her in 1989 when someone gave me her unpublished memoir uh, because I had just given an academic paper on my Majdanek. And I found the story in the memoir so amazing that I really had to question whether it was true. And um, I don't know Polish, so and I was very busy raising a family and working for the Justice Department at the time. And since I knew that the memoir was also in uh, some archives, I figured another historian would find it and do what was necessary to bring it to light if it was true. But then that never happened. And I never forgot this amazing story. It always weighed on me. So in 2017, I was at the Holocaust Museum and I had the benefit of the Internet. And I was able to find just enough to make me think that Yanina Mailberg really was the Countess Sukodolska, who was a known person in Rublin. She is remembered by former Maidana prisoners. And, and recognized in post-war Polish studies of Majdanek for her relief and resistance work. And so I still don't know Polish. <laughs> and uh, I, I wanted to find someone who had the right expertise to track all this down. So I reached out to Joanna, whom I knew by reputation as an expert on the Holocaust. 
And she said she would partner with me in uh, researching Janina Mailberg's life. So during the early years of Hitler's invasion of Poland, she, as you said, formed this new identity as the Countess. How did she pull this off and what made her so convincing? That is such an interesting question, uh, right? That also drove our our research and and writing this book, because in order to understand how Yanina was able to pull it off, this one reviewer called it best fraud ever, (laughs) is that she had a specific background. So she came from a well-to-do family, Polish-Jewish family. Uh, She was School, she, she received educa- uh, schooling by private tutors. She knew the languages. She knew German and French and Polish. She could speak Russian and Ukrainian. She was also studying English. She was a well-educated woman, received her PhD, as Barry mentioned in the very beginning. She moved in these aristocratic circles in her in her in in the big city of Lviv, today Lviv, Ukraine. And she absorbed these mannerisms, these customs, um, way of behaving of the upper classes. And later on, this really helped her pull off her masquerade. And on top of that, she had charisma and this ability to persuade people. And as Barry mentioned, she never took no uh, for an answer. She always pushed for more and more concessions. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she persuades the SS officials to release thousands of prisoners from the concentration camp. How did she accomplish this? I know it's probably a big story, but (laughs) how did she accomplish this? And were the prisoners a little afraid? Because obviously she has to kind of wear this mask. Were they afraid that she was taking them somewhere else? Or did they know that she was rescuing them? How did that play out? Um, Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, Of course, whenever you're talking about anything happening in the Holocaust, uh, and in, in wartime Poland, you have to look at what's happening in the war. Mm-hmm. And so in 1943, uh, you had this change where suddenly Nazi leaders are having to face up to the fact that the war is not going their way. It's not going to end anytime soon. They uh, need to uh, send all the men to the front and they need to find other workers. So they look to Poland, particularly for that. Uh, And then uh, they were also carrying out these ethnic cleansing campaigns in Poland, where they were seizing whole families from their communities, taking the adults off to forced labor, uh, dumping children and those not fit for labor in camps like Majdanek and a couple of other places. Uh, And this was causing a, a, a... big increase in violent resistance. The peasants were running away and joining the partisans, and particularly in Lublin, this part of Poland where she operated. It was really scaring the, the German civilian uh, officials who were running the, the district. And so they decided that they needed to adopt a somewhat kinder and gentler policy towards the Poles. And uh, that's what made them more open to listening to the requests from Yanina and her organization. And she was very good at framing those requests as measures that were clearly in the Germans' interest. She wasn't asking for uh, 
humanitarian assistance to the polls, but for you know public health measures that would keep epidemics from spreading to the German troops. And in the case of these prisoners, she said, look, these prisoners can't, can't work. They're just a burden on you. Uh, so why don't you give them to my organization? And that's that's how she was able to get these people released. But yes, the first time, the first big release from Maidana in August 1943, the people uh, who came out, they were in horrible condition. Most of them couldn't even walk out of the camp. And the ones who got to her were very afraid. They were uh, they were very afraid. They didn't want to leave because they still had relatives in the camp who were too sick to come out. And so, yeah, that was quite a challenge for her. Mm. And you mentioned, right, that she manages to get food delivered. She manages to get medicine delivered. But also she and her husband are Jewish. How risky is this for them at this time in history? It is extremely risky. The time when they arrive in Lublin, they are being smuggled by Janina's family's pre-war friend, Count Andrzej Skrzynski, a member of the Polish aristocracy. And they arrive in Lublin as the Jews were already confined into, into a ghetto. 40,000 Jews from Lublin were confined into the ghetto for the past several months. And if they were discovered, if Janina and her husband Henry were discovered that they were trying to live under false identities, they would have faced the, the fate of other Jews in the city. And that is, you know, being confined to a ghetto, being sent to a, to a camp. So Janina was always under this risk of being discovered. And despite, the, uh, despite of that, she continued with her, with her endeavors, with her relief efforts for the sake of ethnic Poles, non-Jewish Poles, because she could not help the Jews. Mm-hmm. And what did her husband think of this? Was he like, this is too risky, I don't want to get involved? Or was he supportive of her? Like, did this affect their relationship with each other? We don't actually know. All we have to go on that this is is a memoir that she wrote not long before she died in 1969. Uh, and uh, all we know is that Henry got a job with an agricultural cooperative where he was able to lie pretty low. We do know that he was proud of her. Mm-hmm. He, she never spoke after the war about what she did, that he would occasionally say that she saved him, that she was a hero of the Polish resistance. And after she died, he tried to get her memoir published. Uh, but um, I didn't know what they thought at the time. I just want to add also that uh, what makes this even more incredible is that Lublin was the headquarters of the largest murder operation of the Holocaust, Operation Reinhardt, which killed 1.7 million Jews. And some of the officials Nina was dealing with were involved in that operation. In fact, the SS official who helped her get those peasants released from Majdanek in August 43 was the manager of Operation Reinhardt. And she was dealing with them face-to-face. Wow. So you mentioned a little bit about how she didn't really talk about what she did during the war, after the war, but what was her life like? What was she doing after the war all the way up until her death in the 60s? 
Well, Yanina continued to be involved in relief efforts up until the Soviet Army's entry and liberation of Lublin in summer 1944. And she became one of the leaders in the newly established organization, social relief organization in post-war Poland. So in this role, Janina was traveling around Poland. She had a, she had a, this unique opportunity to learn about the suffering of Poles, the destruction, the orphaned children. But she also uh, gleaned information about the about surviving Jews, about the violence against Jews that they that they were facing. And so Janina, in her role as well, traveled to the United States on a United Nations fellowship. And we have documents, we have clippings, newspaper clippings with her photographs and, and articles about these, uh, about these visits that she made around the U.S. And during, those visits, during that visit in the U.S., Yanina also tried to make contact with various scholars because she, she wanted to uh, help Henry emigrate from Poland to the U.S. because they understood that as survivors, with all the violence going on against survivors in post-war Poland, they, they, didn't, they didn't have a future there. And Janina continued to live under her wartime identity. She didn't even disclose that she was Jewish after the war in Poland. So eventually, Henry manages to emigrate in 1949, and Janina escaped from Poland in 1950. She reached Berlin, and from there, she went on to Canada, where she reunited with her husband. But Canada was not their final destination. So a few years later, in 1956, they arrived in Chicago, Illinois. Henry assumed a position as a, as a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. And Janina became a tenured professor of mathematics at the Illinois Institute of Technology. Hmm. That's so impressive. Yeah. I mean, she did so much. She was so intelligent. I mean, we haven't even, again, touched on the fact that she had a PhD in mathematics mm -hmm. for that time period. That's crazy. <laughs> but when I Googled her, it seems like she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I know this is a tough question to answer, but why do you think she has been kind of forgotten to history? Well, she was living under a false identity. So, and she never, uh, revealed it when uh, she changed her identity when she went to Canada again, but she didn't reveal that she had been Yanina Sukodolska before, and she never revealed it in Poland. So the people she worked with, the people she rescued, didn't know who she was. Uh, and so uh, that's one, one, one major reason. This, this is the first time her story is being told. As I said, there, there was, there is recognition of Countess Sikodolska. My Donic Museum, for example, the scholars there knew about Countess Sikodolska. They did not know that she had a different name, much less that she was Jewish, although they accept it now. So well, that's, that's really why we haven't heard of her. No, no um, well, and also the fact that Yanina and Henry did not have children of their own. So there was no one to carry on that story or to learn that story from her, right? And tell this story in public. Henry, uh, Henry and Yanina were, were 
you know, survivors. Henry had his two brothers who were also survivors uh, of the Holocaust. One of the brothers had two children. And we've had an opportunity to meet with the niece. And she knew snippets of information about what Yanina did during the war. But she did never had the full story. And so Yanina really didn't share that publicly. And I think we also need to remember that it was in the 19... It was in the 1960s that she, we think that she wrote this memoir. And that was not a time when survivors were vocal about their experiences where they went to visit schools or to museums. There were no museums in the Holocaust, like we have the Holocaust Museum in the US today. So I think all this, all this context is necessary to understand why her story was buried, why we didn't know about it for, for so many years. Yeah, not another factor is, um... There wasn't that much interest, particularly in the experiences of women Holocaust survivors. Uh, so one of one of the efforts that were taken to try to uh, publish her memoir back in the 1980s was to send it to a very eminent Holocaust historian in the United States, hoping that he would advocate for its publication. But he said, well, it's an interesting story, but really the experiences of one woman Holocaust survivor don't make a compelling case for publication. Hmm. So, yeah, at that time, really Holocaust studies was in its infancy. Most of the scholars were German historians like me, and they were focused on the perpetrators and the processes and so forth, and not, not so much on the experiences of the victims. That's changed very much so in this century. So other than this memoir, what other types of resources did you have to kind of compile this book, since this is really the first time this story is being told, as you said? I'm so glad you mentioned this issue of research, because that's that's something that is a fascinating part of this of this entire project, because first we had we had the memoir. Barry received the memoir. That's all we had. Uh, then Barry found a reference in a 1973 a uh, book review, right, uh, right that mentioned uh, Yanina Yanina Suhodolska, and starting from the snippets, really snippets of information, uh, we were trying to trace other, you know, archives and uh, and documents and photographs and newspaper clippings all over the world in not eight or nine countries in South America, North America, in uh, in Israel, in in Europe, in Ukraine, in Poland, in Germany, and so on. And we found fascinating information that, you know, surprised us as well. Uh, some of the most interesting, I mean, one of the most interesting collection uh, that we found in source of information was a collection of letters that Yanina wrote to her dear friend, Anna Rudzinska in New York. Now, Anna Rudzinska was the wife of Mikhail um, uh, Rudzinski, who was at that time the Polish delegate and representative in the UN. And I mentioned that Yanina had a fellowship from the UN, right? And she traveled around the US. So Yanina wrote these letters to Anna, Anna Rudzinska uh, detailing some of the some of the ways in, she in which she was trying to uh, make contact with the scholars in the US. And in that collection, we found photographs, just a stack of photographs of Yanina with her friend Anna, and then Yanina with Henry and so on. Just such an amazing, amazing uh, source for, for our research. And the source was not in Europe. It was in the New York Public Library. 
Wow. I love hearing the research process behind things like this because it's, I think that people think like, oh yeah, you wrote a book, but it's like, well, there's a difference between writing a, another book about Eleanor Roosevelt and a book about mm-hmm. Yanina because <laughs> yeah. it's such a, a labor of love and we're so happy that you put the work in to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one question we do like to ask just because we cover a lot of women on this show and people always ask us like, are you going to run out of women to cover? And absolutely not. (laughs) She hasn't been on the list and now she is to cover on the show. Are there other women in the history of the Holocaust that you think are unsung that you would recommend people know about, or that we cover on the podcast to get a more fulfilled picture of the people behind what was going on? I think there are so many that we don't know about who had fascinating histories, who performed crucial work in resistance and relief, but just women who try to live their daily lives. How are they able to do that? That is fascinating. And of course, there's research, as Barry mentioned, this research on on women during World War II, during the Holocaust, is is, is flourishing right now. Uh, One of the most important recent books on this topic is, of course, Judy Battalion's Battalion's, uh, work, The Light of Days, about Jewish women resistors in in ghettos, who worked as couriers, who worked as, I mean, who uh, performed resistance activities. It's a fascinating story. Another one that just came out is Anna Mueller's study of a Polish Jewish woman, Tonia Lechtman, who, whose kind of story encapsulates uh, the history of the 20th century. So I think there is a lot about, about Jewish women during, during the Holocaust, during World War II. And as our book shows, there is still so much that we don't know about women, Jewish women's lives, survival strategies, resistance during during the Holocaust. There's so much more that we can still learn. And our book also deals with women, Polish women in the resistance. And there we, we go into the stories of several women whose activities intersected with Yanina's um, and are also very impressive and inspiring. Well, it has been such a joy to have you here today. We feel like we learned so much and are Mm -hmm. so excited to dive more into your book. But for everybody out there listening, this came out January 23rd. So can you tell everybody where they can find it and where they can find you online and on your socials and everything else that you're writing and researching? So the book can be purchased on all major, from all major bookstores and, and, and sites. We actually have a website, www.counterfightcountess.com, where we list all our events, information about the books, editions of the books, translations, and so on. Anything, it's right there. You can also find us um, in our professional websites, joannasleva.com and Elizabeth. ElizabethBWhite.com. Exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you again. It was such, just so great to talk to you and uh, keep up all the amazing work that you both are doing. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having us.
listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.